Why is there evil in the world? This is a good question. It's an excellent question if you think of it. Perhaps it's a question you've asked yourself or you've heard asked it. And frankly, I find nothing wrong with the question. Some are afraid of it, but there's nothing to be afraid of by it. This, perhaps more than any other question, is asked by the most people. In light of headlines like we saw yesterday, it is a question that is asked often. This question, perhaps more than any other, has stopped many gospel conversations dead in their tracks. Perhaps you don't even share the gospel because you're afraid afraid that's the question someone's going to ask you. Why is there evil in the world? Perhaps this question has plagued your mind. It has troubled your heart. Maybe it's this one question that has caused you to doubt God's goodness. To doubt His justice, perhaps. Doubt even His power. And I wonder this morning, as a Christian or as a non-Christian, have you thoughtfully considered this question? Have you considered what the Bible has to say about this question? Particularly the answer to this question. Why is there evil in this world? And as we're thinking about this question, I think perhaps an even better question might be, why is there not more evil in the world? Why are things not worse than they could be? Considering the depth of our own depravity, the evilness of our own hearts, why are men not more evil? Why... Am I? Why are you not as evil as you know you can be or could be? Why? This question captivates us. This question of why is the world not more evil is a question that captivated the reformers. It was a question that captivated Augustine. Why are things not worse? If the Bible is true about man's depravity and evil, why are things not worse? Well, both the Reformers and Augustine before them concluded that God must be at work restraining evil in the world, that God must be at work restraining the evil of men so that they do not achieve the greatest extent of their evil. This term, what we're thinking about, has a sort of a a technical theological term. I'm going to use it this morning in my intro. I'm going to talk about it more in the sermon. It's a good word. I hope you'll take it, deposit it in your theological tool belts, it is particular providence. No one here this morning has a problem with universal providence. All world religions have some form of 
universal providence. All world religions have something that that offers a universal, there's a deity, there's some form of deity, some force out there that is at work universally. But particular providence is unique to Christianity, and it is, in short, means that God is at work in every minute detail. The insignificant and the significant. That God is at work in every particular part of the wills of men and women to bring about His eternal purposes. In other words, this teaching goes stretches further into history from the Reformers and Augustine all the way back to a man named Paul who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that God is at work in this creation, restraining the evils of men and bringing about His purposes for His glory alone. This means that God is not, as the deists believe, sitting back, uninvolved in His creation, but rather God is involved in all the details. God cares about all the details, not just the big things. This is why we believe and affirm that not one molecule, the the smallest form of creation moves without God's sovereign will. Nothing moves. Nothing has its being apart from God. God is at work even when He goes unnoticed. Well, Friends, this is what 1 Samuel 29 will be about this morning. Where God is not made explicit, He is still there, working even with evil men to bring about His divine purposes. As we come into these final chapters this morning, I just want to remind you of a few, a number of items. First, what this book is about. This book of 1 Samuel, and then its subsequent 2 Samuel, is about God raising up a leader for the people of Israel. The the nation of Israel desired a leader. And at first they had chosen a leader like the world around them. But God in His providence wanted to give them a leader like the world around them to show them the kind of leader they genuinely needed. Saul was Israel's first king, a king like the world. He was impressive, good-looking man. Uh, He was sharp and he was intelligent. He came from a very wealthy family. And it was just the kind of king the people thought they needed. But as time would tell, Saul proved himself to be a problem. Saul's problem was Saul. He wanted to be worshipped rather than to lead others to worship God. For Saul, the, the power of the throne went to his head. And though Saul had failed... And the people had miserably failed in following him. God remained faithful to his people. He remained faithful by raising up a king who is said to be a man after God's own heart. A man who would follow him, follow God, and who would lead others to do the same. God chose an ordinary, ordinary, nobody from the hills of Bethlehem to shepherd God's people. David was was no one important. He he didn't come from any great family line. All the rage today in the news and 
And even on popular culture is, is uh, getting your uh, ancestry, see where you came from, doing a DNA test. If, if David would have submitted that DNA test, it would have came back that David was not full-blooded Israelite. He was a foreigner. His great-grandmother was a foreigner, an arch-enemy of the people of Israel. Not a great, great pedigree, not a great ancestry to be proudly displaying that, that his great-grandmother was a Moabite woman. But even though David was insignificant and a nobody, God still chose him. In fact, this is the story of the Bible. This is God chooses the ordinary. He chooses the nobodies. He even chooses sinners to bring about his purposes in the world. Brothers and sisters, that should comfort us this morning. That should encourage us this morning. That God in his grace even chooses to work with sinners. In the book of 1 Samuel, if you would just think from a literary perspective, it is crafted together masterfully to contrast these two leaders. I love mysteries. I'm particularly drawn to those. I love stories that have mysteries in it. But one of the things, often in mysteries, that I find very frustrating, perhaps this has happened to you, maybe you've watched a show or read a, a book, a popular mode of communication or a popular uh, mode of, of telling a story is, is to tell the ending and then back up a little bit and, and sort of give the dates. Like, so they, so the, the TV show, for example, or the movie will begin with the ending. And then they'll flash across the screen 24 hours later or uh, five years later or earlier, excuse me, right? And you're like, oh, what? what? You can't do that to me. This is what the narrator of 1 Samuel does to us this morning. Uh, we've considered yes, last week the, the king's darkest day, Saul's darkest day. Saul has hit rock bottom. Things could not go worse for Saul. He has gone off and met with a, uh, a witch uh, in order to uh, divine for him the spirit of Samuel. And what the narrator now does in chapter 29 is turn the clock back, if you will, and starts the day over again. And consider another character. And consider how David will approach the same day. What David will do on the same day on the calendar that Saul's day was his darkest. What will David do? What will become of David? More than that, this chapter seems to be somewhat of an alibi for David. An alibi for him in what is about to take place in these fields. Well, friends, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel verse 29, or chapter 29, excuse me, as we consider these 11 verses, mercifully short this morning, as we conclude today and next week on this glorious word of God from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 29. These are the words of our Lord. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, the, the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he has deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. 
And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to his place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang in their da- to one another in their dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and said, it seems to me right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day that you are coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with your servants, with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. God sovereignly reigns over our everyday lives by bringing about his divine purposes and mercifully keeping us from sin. This morning, I want us to consider two words. So two words uh, will help organize our thoughts this morning. First, providence. Second, mercy. Providence and mercy. Now you've intuitively caught on, in, in, as I read as you followed along, that God was not explicitly mentioned in this text. In other words, he is not seen to be at work here. But friends, any time you, you find in your reading, you must remember that God is still at work, even though he may not be mentioned explicitly. An entire book, the book of Esther, uh, God is nowhere in that book mentioned, but yet you see him behind the scenes working to save his people. And in this text, we see that God is at work providentially, ordering the affairs of David's life so as to mercifully keep him from sin. So the purpose of our time is to remind us that God is mercifully for us even when we are foolishly against him. David was a fool. David was where he should not have been. David had crossed the line. David had found himself fighting on the wrong side. Perhaps that's us here this morning. Well, the first thing we consider in verses really 1 through 5 and, and throughout this whole, whole chapter is the providence of God. Well, let's consider what the text says first. Uh, notice with me here uh, this question, which seems to be the, the theme of the entire chapter. And, and the question comes to us in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. We are told that the commanders of the Philistines asked Achish, Achish was a lord. He was one of the five Philistine lords uh, whom David uh, was working for as a bodyguard. He worked closely with him. And as David and his men were marching in the rear of the army, the lords became curious why David and his other friends were with them. 
David, of course, was well known. He was not obscure to the Philistine people. And so these lords take ex- exception to David's presence. And this question right here in verse 3 seems to summarize the whole chapter. What are these Hebrews doing here? <laughs> it's a great question. It's quite ironic. David, what are you doing? What are you doing there? David, you're on the wrong side. You should be over there. You shouldn't be over here. Now, as we read this and consider what is going on here, and this is criminal behavior. David will forever change his future if he goes into battle. David's life will forever be changed. This is the line has literally been drawn. And if David crosses this line, he has no hope of ever being king over Israel. Imagine, how will David be able to explain to the, his future kingdom that, oh yeah, you know, this one time a couple years ago, yeah, I was kind of working for the enemy and we went down one day and yeah, we killed everybody. Oh yeah, and that happened to be the same day that Saul died, but I didn't have anything to do with it. No, his throne would forever be tainted with the blood of Saul. And so in this text, what God is doing is rescuing David from his foolishness. He's providentially working with David and these evil men, these Philistine lords, the enemies of God. He's using them to bring about his end and his purpose. David was on the wrong side. Yet God was using these leaders to keep David from sinning. And who could question them? David, after all, was the one who killed Goliath. This is, this is important to us. It's a story that many of us know about David killing Goliath, even in popular culture. right? Goliath, the word Goliath. You could talk to any non-Christian, never been to church before, and you ask them, have you ever heard of David and Goliath? Most of them would probably say, yes. Well, so would, he, so would be these Philistines, right? They had known about David and Goliath. They had... They knew what David had done, how David had taken the head of their champion, the warrior, the the great leader, warrior, king. And Achish here in this text tries to stick up for David. Hey, David has been faithful to me. David's been loyal to me. Why are you so suspicious of him? Why are you so worried about him? As you see in the text, Achish even appeals to David's former title as a servant of Saul, king of Israel. This would have proved to be a very important piece in the match that was before them, to have the former general of of the enemy before you. That would have proved to be very helpful. But this proved insufficient for these commanders. These lords were too wise, they were uh, too keen, David must go, and he must go now. Get him out of here. He's got to go. Though David had proven himself, we know that David had not been as quite as faithful as he's led to believe in this text. God was using at work. Notice with me what they say in verses 4 through 
through 5. But the commander of the Philistines were angry with Achish, and the commanders, or the lords, of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with the battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? In other words, they're, they're asking the question we just considered. How is it that he will ever be able to fix this? Let's say there comes a day in the future where David uh, goes back to Saul. How will he ever reconcile himself with, with King Saul? If he crosses the line, it's over with for him. And they know it. And ironically, notice what they say. Would it be with the heads of the men here? In other words, will David take our heads off? Is this just a ploy? Is he a spy? Is he a, a secret agent in our ranks? Someone who in the midst, in the heat of the battle, is going to turn against us? David's reputation seems to be at work against him. In other words, God uses his past successes as a means to deliver him even from this terrible situation. Nonetheless, we see God's providence at work. God is using these Philistine lords for his own purposes. Just the way he did earlier in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant went into the land of Philistia, God is at work. He is working through these kings. He will keep... David from grotesque sin. And through these stories, we must see God at work. That God is not distant, unable to help, but rather that God is at work in the details. Even the insignificant things. This ordinary story. I mean, you consider that this ordinary story, this didn't need to be included. This ordinary story about how David did not end up on the battlefield that day is meant to teach us that man may plan his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. David was down there of his own free will, but God was still at work. You see, you might, you might not believe that God is Lord. You, you may not live in submission to God as Lord. You may not recognize him as creator and king of your life, but that does not change the fact, that does not mitigate the reality that God is still in charge, that he still reigns and rules over the universe. This is what the prophet Jeremiah wrote, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. The prophet Jeremiah recognized that God was at work in the wills of men. That God was using them to bring about His divine purposes for His glory. This morning you may question that. But as the great hymn writer captures it, He leadeth me, He leadeth me. By His own hand He leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by His hand He leadeth me. Friend, this is particular providence. When we sing in that great hymn, He leadeth me, we believe that He is particular in His providence. He doesn't just kind of push us, get us going. No, He leadeth me. Meaning that He is behind me. He is pushing me. He is moving me. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines providence as this. The doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing 
and maintaining the properties with which he created them, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinct properties to cause them to act as they do and direct them to fulfill his purposes. Closely related to the doctrine of the providence of God is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is the doctrine of application of the providence of God. In other words, that God is not only providence, but, but he has the power over his creation. Uh, the word we might use would be king. So when we sing in our hymns about God being king or Lord, what we are appealing to, what we are, what we are seeking to sing about and put in our minds is God's particular providence, His sovereign reign over every aspect of our lives. He rules and reigns even when we are unwilling to accept it. As we'll see in a moment, it brings great application. Before we get there, two more helpful quotes. I don't normally do this, but given the weight of this particular point, I want to appeal to people way smarter than I will ever be. And that's why I've just quoted Grudem, and then now I will quote the great reformer, John Calvin. Calvin carefully defined providence in terms of of universal and particular. Uh, In in terms of, uh, no one has a problem with universal providence. No one struggles with that. Where people struggle, where Christians trip themselves up, is this aspect of particular providence. That God is in in the details. Calvin writes, We make God the master and controller of everything, affirming that from the beginning and in accordance with his wisdom, he determined what he should do, and that now by his power, his sovereignty, he gives effect to every uh, to whatever he has decided. Hence, we conclude that not only are heaven, earth, and all indis- uh, indispensable creatures ruled by his providence, but so too are men's intentions and wills, so that God guides them to his appointed goal. Friends, that's what God's doing here. David's like, I'm done. I'm out. I quit. No, you don't. I'm not done with you. In fact, I'm going to use these wicked, evil men, these Philistine lords, to get you out of country, to get you back at home, So that one, you will not be present on the day that Saul dies. So that no one will ever be able to blame you or question you. So that your kingdom will be established not by blood, but by my eternal decree. And as we'll see secondarily, notice what happens in chapter 30. If David had been out there in the battlefield, his wives and all of the children would have been destroyed. Brothers and sisters, there's no chance here. There's no mistake here. This isn't just happenstance. This isn't just, oh, coincidentally David is back home so that he can find that his homeland has been raided by the Amalekites so that he can go and rescue his wives and children and that he can free all of those that have been captive. There's no happenstance, no chance that David goes and distributes these great gifts to all of the of the tribes of of Israel. It's not by chance that David is far, far, far from the battle lines that day that Saul dies. No, God is at work. God is at the details. He is bringing about 
And Calvin would go on in, his, in the Institutes to write an application to the Christian life. He says this, Convinced, therefore, that nothing happens by chance, Amen. but that all things are determined by God's providence, the Christian will, in his thinking, always regard God as the principal cause of every event. Now, I want you to settle that into your minds this morning. I'm quoting Calvin because he's, he's teaching us what the Bible teaches. That the Christian will in his thinking always regard God as the principal cause of every event. That's big. That's life-changing. That's earth-shattering. That's soul-encouraging. That's uplifting this morning when we read headlines like we read yesterday. Yet at the same time, he will be sure to consider the respective role of lesser causes. In other words, when evil is at play, he will not appeal to God and say, God did these evil things. Nor will he doubt that God's providence keeps watch to protect him and will allow nothing to happen, which is not for his welfare and salvation. And because God's dealings are first with man and then with every creature, he can be sure that God's providence prevails everywhere. So what does that matter for your life? How does that change your life? How does that shape you? How does that give you comfort? Well, brothers and sisters, do you not find it a comfort to know that God's in control? Even when it seems as if the world's in chaos? Even when your own soul is in chaos? Even when your own little world is in chaos? Even when you are so blind like David and cannot see that you are running headlong into death and destruction, can you not see God at work? Brothers and sisters, this is not mere theory. It is reality. It is the truth. Lord Jesus Christ is on His throne. He sits enthroned over the universe and He rules over the affairs of all men. As Calvin says, God's providence prevails everywhere, not just where I think it does. So friend, your world may be crashing. It may be crumbling. But not a stone has fallen in your crumbling world that God has not providentially purposed. In your trials, this gives us comfort. We have not stumbled into any trial. The pain that we experience has been brought about by providence. Not your ability to get through trials, not your, not your hope in, in your own strength will get you through the dark waters of trials. It is only this truth that the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation that God is on His throne, that He rules over the affairs of men. When you cannot see the end of your trials, when the darkness seems to prevail, brothers, sisters, know and trust that God is directing your every step. That God is perfectly and precisely where He wants you. It is not by chance that you live in 2018. It's not by chance that you live on XY Street. It's not by chance that you're here this morning. It is by God's providential hand. Submit yourselves to Him. 
Find encouragement in that truth. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon your soul. Trust Him. Trust this truth that God is providential. He is in control. Though evil be around you, know that the Lord still reigns. We are meant to understand that God's providence was keeping David from doing the unspeakable. If David was to be the next king of Israel, he could not be on the battlefield against the very people he was going to lead. He couldn't do it. And so God in His providence, using these sinful men, brought about His purposes. Though His providence anoints our steps, He steers our lives to bring them to His appointed ends. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to trust that. Let's consider secondly the mercy of God. The mercy of God. God's acts of providence prove to be a measure of His mercy. His benevolent mercy towards King David. And I want you to see how God's providence and God's mercy often work together. In verses 6-11, through 11, David's loyalty is retold. He, he retells Achish, Man, what have I done? I've proven myself faithful to you. And Achish retells first in verses 6 through 7 about David's faithfulness to him as a reason to have him present in the battle. Oh, you can see, if you'll just pause for a moment, the tension heightening. There's great tension in the text. David is told to go home. Achish uh, obliges, but you can see some tension. Is he really going to send him home? He really seems to be endeared with David. really likes him. David seems to be a really great guy. wants to have him around. And David responds by saying, Hey, man, what have I done? I seem to be really good. I've proven myself. Man, can't I just stay? Forget what these guys said. Achish is comforting David before he delivers the bad news in verse 6. He, he's buttering him up, if you will, for, for the bad news that, David, you've got to go home. David was a warrior at heart, remember, right? He, he, was, he had tasted victory. He wanted to be on the battle line. He wanted to be fighting. That's what he needed to be doing in his mind. And so he was not going to take this news very easily. And notice here what, what Achish says. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out in with me to the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming out to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord did not approve of you. Well, if you remember right, uh, David wasn't very honest. David had many faults, and he had not been honest with Achish up to this point. You'll be reminded that David, in chapter 27, had been out making raids against Philistine territories and going back to Achish and saying, oh yeah, I've been attacking Judah. I've been attacking uh, the, the, the friends of Israel today. David was deceiving not only Achish, but perhaps even himself. But nonetheless, Achish sends him off. He sends him home and he says, listen, go peaceably. Don't go with a fight. Don't go kicking and screaming. Just go home. You see, again, God's work here trying to convince David to go home. Though David was going to resist this. David is clearly and rightly taken back by these instructions. He's quite frustrated by them. As I've just said, he came out to fight. And so he appeals to his character. And look at verse 8. 
He asks yet again these same questions that he's asked Saul. And so in some ways, Achish here is a, is a type of Saul. He's, he's compared to Saul. Verse 8, And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? David says here that I've come out to fight the enemies of my lord, the king. In other words, the text is making clear David's sin in all of this. What do you mean, David, that Israel is your enemy? Please tell us, David, about what has changed in your soul, that now Israel is seen as your enemy. I thought, David, that you would never put your hand against the Lord's anointed. I thought, David, you said that you were always going to uphold righteousness and justice, for it would be the foundation of your throne. What do you mean, David, that you call Israel your enemy? For if David will succeed in his wishes and going against the Lord of the armies of Israel, there will be no turning back. But God would prevail against David's will that day. God would prevail against David that day by showing David tremendous mercy for his treachery. He was through his providence mercifully restraining David from his own evil. And David obeys. He submits, if you will, as we've considered, to the providence of God. He submits himself to the Lord's mercy. Though explicitly he does not see it as the Lord's mercy, we have a a unique vantage point that David did not have. We can kind of step back from the text and look. Consider the totality of what is going on here. And David obeys. Though reluctantly he is obliged to, to obey his master. And the story then transitions to chapter 30, where we find David going and saving his people. The Lord saves David. This is the point. The Lord has mercy on David so that David would have mercy on his people. That David was being saved so that he could be a savior. It's tremendously powerful. God is merciful. This is his character. God is merciful even even when we don't deserve his mercy. Mercy is unmerited favor. It is undeserved. It is unearned. David has sinned. He has rebelled against God. But God in His infinite mercy was restraining David from his sin. For David, it could have been a lot worse had God not been at work restraining him. Had had God not intervened providentially in David's life, David's sin could have blossomed and grown. And this morning I wonder, how has God restrained you? From your sin. How has the Lord intervened in your life so as to save you? Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, are you fighting on the wrong side? The Bible says you are. If you're not a Christian this morning, do you you understand that you are an enemy of God? Popular culture might think that you're a child of God, a, a friend of God. But the Bible says that those who have rebelled against God are enemies. We heard from Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Friend, do you trust that your sin has rightly warranted death? Friends, you and I have been created by God to live in submission to Him. He has created us. And because He has created us, we answer to Him. But we have willingly chosen to to do life our own way. To go our own way to To live how we want to live. And this is what the Bible calls as sin. Living life your own way rather than God's way. Basic definition of sin. But God, in His infinite mercy, while we were yet sinners, sent His Son to die the death we deserve. Brothers and sisters, this is mercy. Jesus died as a substitute for us. Where we deserve death, Jesus died. And a great exchange has taken place where the sinless has died for the sinner. The saint, the the only one who is ever holy and perfect and righteous, the only human being to ever walk this earth who perfectly obeyed God, dies for people who don't want anything to do with God. This great exchange happened on the cross where Christ died for our sins. So that this morning you don't need to fear any longer. You don't need to be afraid of God. Fear judgment. And more to the point, you don't need to carry that burden. That burden of guilt that you've been carrying. That burden of shame that you've been carrying along. Oh, how heavy that burden has been, hasn't it? It makes one very weary and tired Carrying around with you through life that shame of your sin, the guilt. Perhaps you've thought, Lord, if I, God, if, if you're real, could I just go back? Could you just erase these things from my life? Could you just erase the, the shame and the guilt that I feel today? Perhaps it was years ago, perhaps it was last night, that, that, that guilt and the shame, it is heavy and burdensome, and you have been carrying it through an arduous journey. You have, though, carried it long enough. Friend, it is, my time, it is your time and my time to lay the burden at the cross. Brothers and sisters, come to the cross of Christ. There you find mercy and justice. You will find justice satisfied and mercy freely given to all those where the burden is lifted, where mercy is found. Mercy is only for those who are weary, only for those who are weak, only for those that are burdened. Will you find mercy in Christ today? Go to the one who said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That rest you seek is only found in Christ. Brothers and sisters, will you come to this same mercy again today? Brothers, lay your guilt to the cross. Stop carrying it around. Your relationship with God is not based on your personal performance. It is not based on how well you did today. It is based solely on the cross of Christ. I know that this journey is hard. The trials of this life are difficult. And I know that sin so quickly clings to us. It's like Velcro, right? It's quick to attach and it's really hard to pull apart. That's what sin is like. 
But if you would remove the sin from your life, it begins by finding mercy. It begins by removing the guilt and shame that you feel. It begins by finding mercy in Christ. It is mercy that frees. It is when you find that God loves you unconditionally because of His love, not for you, but for His Son. In other words, God's unconditional love is because He unconditionally loves His Son. That's good news this morning. Only those who are forgiven can know the freedom that you seek and forgiveness we have through Christ. Calvin, thinking in the Institutes about it, this, this question that we've considered this morning, particularly why God allows evil. He writes, Although for a time God may leave the wicked and wrongdoers unpunished, and may even suffer the good and the innocent to endure many trials and to face oppression from evil men, we should not lose sight of the fact that God always rules in righteousness. Likewise, what an opportunity we have to contemplate His mercy. When He does not fail to pursue wretched sinners with His mercy and bringing them back to Him with more than fatherly kindness until their obstinacy yields to His benevolence. In other words, God, in His mercy, pursues us until our rebellious souls break under His merciful hand. Until we are washed anew with the blood of Christ and we see all that God has for us in Christ. Mercy to pursue Mercy to catch us. Mercy to overcome us. God's merciful in His providence. Friends, David shouldn't have been there. He was on the wrong side. David had no business fighting in the ranks of Philistia. He was the anointed king of Israel. He was already chosen. He was already anointed. The throne was already his. He was the man after God's own heart. But God in his infinite mercy does not destroy David, though he deserves it. Rather, he mercifully leads him away from sin. Like a loving father, he grabs hold of his son and through providence leads him home. This is our God. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God whom we praise. Infinite mercy. Even in the midst of our sin. In 1684, John Bunyan wrote a sermon for his suffering people. The book was called Seasonable Counsels. Advice to Sufferers. And through this sermon, he seeks to comfort his congregation with this truth of God's Merciful providence. Bunyan writes, It is not what enemies will, nor what they are resolved upon, but what God will, and what God appoints that shall be done. 
No enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise. So no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for glory. We shall or shall not suffer even as it pleaseth him. God is particular in his care for your soul. Jesus said it this way. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father. In other words, you're not sure if I can do this? Let me tell you about my Father. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Friends, this is comfort. This is particular providence. This is God promising you that however dark the trial is, however evil this world may be, no one will ever snatch you out of the Father's hand. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we gather as your children to hear and to heed and obey. What a glorious thing it is to consider these truths of your sovereign hand in our lives. Teach us what all this means. Teach us to submit. Teach us to trust. Teach us to obey. Let us find comfort and rest today in a hand that will for all of eternity secure us so that no evil shall prevail. For your glory and our good in Christ's name, amen.